Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Before we get started, I wanted to just give you the heads up that in this episode, we talk about suicide. I'm Rebecca Carroll, and this is Come Through, 15 essential conversations about race in a pivotal year for America. A couple weeks ago, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic, and in it, I expressed my strong belief that there needs to be a moral intervention in the minds of white America. Black lives can't matter until we are seen as human beings first. It was gutting to write in the moment. It was also widely quoted. But now, as demonstrations surge in protest of police violence against Black people all across the country, I'm stunned that it even had to be said. Especially during these months of quarantine, when, from within the confines of our small Brooklyn apartment, I've watched my teenage son grow more deeply into his own humanity every day. Not since he was a baby have I been able to witness his day-to-day growth in such an intimate way. The changes in his face and the broadening of his shoulders and tenor of his voice. I'm quietly astonished as I watch him hone his dunking skills on the seven-foot outdoor hoop we bought after lockdown. And a little concerned it will not have served him when he gets back to a full-size court. He occasionally overhears something from one of my Zoom meetings. Yes, our apartment is that small. And I can see him building ideas in his brain as he asks me about something I've said to a colleague or raises his own questions about race and racism. I try to answer him as honestly as possible, but I worry that my answers still won't adequately prepare him for the country he returns to when the quarantine lifts. My son turns 15 next month, the same age as Antron McRae and Yusuf Salam when... In the spring of 1989, they and three other teenage boys were wrongfully accused of rape. They both ended up spending more than six years in prison. They were known as the Central Park Five, and their story was captured with magnificent humanity by director Ava DuVernay in the Netflix series When They See Us. This past May, Ava and her multi-platform media company, Array, launched a new online education initiative called Array 101, which uses When They See Us to help high school-age students understand the threat of systemic racism and to demonstrate the impact of social justice. I asked Ava to come through for a conversation about her company's initiative, and I started off by asking about her audience. So in a recent interview with Gail King, you said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the thing that many creatives in Hollywood fail to do is to make the connection between a thing you make and the people who are watching, young folks in particular. And it occurred to me, you know, the switch to online learning due to COVID and quarantine made it pretty clear pretty quickly who suffers from that arrangement. And it's black and brown kids who don't have access to Wi-Fi or computers. And so I wondered if you're concerned about that for the audience of this initiative? Yeah, I'm concerned about everything, you know, and every solution is not going to solve every problem. But to not do it because of the digital divide would be to leave out a bunch of kids, black and brown included, who can download it. You know, most kids have a phone. 
Uh, we know that we're dealing with, you know, some numbers that have nothing, no digital connection. But we know that, that you know, the majority of kids and um, from finding 86% of teenagers have a cell phone of some kind. And so we thought, well, better to, to try to serve them um, rather than not do it at all because of not being 100% perfect. So certainly it's a concern, and certainly we need to try to figure out how to reach those kids. In the meantime, as a filmmaker who does not work in education, I felt like my responsibility was to try to go a step further and to do the best we could. Um, you know, since we've announced this, we've gotten hundreds of messages, social posts, DMs, texts, uh, emails to array from, you know, grown-ups who just wanted to go deeper when they watched When They See Us. And so we made uh, the piece with an eye towards serving independent study at various age levels. I also feel like what you're making, you just referenced it as entertainment, but to me, particularly when they see us, it's more than entertainment. It's more than TV and film and images of us. How do you describe the thing that you are making? Um, I describe it as a, a storytelling. I'm a storyteller, whether I'm using the medium of film, television, whether I'm, you know, moving information around through these learning companions, you know, whatever I'm doing, it's some form of storytelling. Uh, but film and television is entertainment. There are actors, there are lights, there are scripts, and, you know, you have to keep people watching. You have to make sure that you have proper act breaks and, you know, proper beginning, middle, and end to scenes. And so there's a whole uh, language uh, film and television that, you know, for me, falls out of the category of entertainment, which is separate from when I'm making a speech or when I'm writing a paper or whether I'm interrogating things in the real world in the different ways that I do, the art practice is one that takes on the tropes of entertainment. I think that's okay. It's not a bad word. But yeah, you know, that's what it is. The overall umbrella is storytelling, though. And you're launching this initiative with When They See Us. I've watched it three times. It haunts me. Oh, wow. I kept going back to it. I felt Mm-hmm. kindred to it. My son, my teenage son, has only watched parts of it. I'm letting him work through it at his own pace. What would you want him to take away from this work? I would want him um, at his age and, you know, who he is and what he looks like in the world as he walks out the door to watch it as a defensive precaution. He needs to know what his rights are. He needs to know what can happen to him. He needs to know how people view him. He needs to watch it in a way that is protective so that he can, you know, kind of be armed with knowledge. It's just vitally important. You know, we watch these pieces, they're framed as entertainment, they use the tropes of entertainment, but ultimately inside we're telling stories of each other, we're passing down, you know, vital information from generation to generation about how to protect yourself, how to come home at night. So I would hope that he gets to the end of it and it's not a sad story about people outside of him, that it's a story he can carry with him, you know, to protect himself as he walks through the world. And is there specific curriculum in the online learning initiative that builds on that? Well, all of it is designed to elevate and kind of extend one's viewing. You know, one of my favorite lessons is a lesson that has to do with data statistics. You know, I wanted to put a math lesson in this, and uh, the groups that we worked with to put it together really took that challenge. And there's a whole database study where, you know, young people or anyone can go into the NYPD crime database and start to do data analysis and answer math questions and just kind of understand how to read data, Um, Mm. you know, whether it's, you know, understanding how many Latinx men were arrested in the Bronx on days where the temperature was over 80 degrees, 
um, uh, as opposed to, you know, Caucasian men who were arrested in Manhattan on days when it's over 80 degrees and people are outside. And and so anyway, that kind of analysis and and applying mathematical analysis to it um, just shows us that, you know, these stories have to be attacked from all avenues that our base of knowledge can expand in all kinds of ways that we can never stop learning. And so our goal is just to use our stories as a step to continue that. And so speaking of of police and over-policing and over-indexing with black and brown bodies, you know, the current sociopolitical climate is obviously deeply, deeply unsettling. I would say for black folks especially, but I've also grown kind of tired of hearing white people say, I'm so sorry, what a terrible time to be black in America, because I actually love being black all the time. And the terrible state of things is more on white America and its moral bankruptcy. And so what, what do you think this this online initiative, the work that you do, can educate and celebrate each other as Black folks while also making clear that we're not the thing that's terrible to be in America? Oh, I mean, no one's ever said that to me. So that'd be interesting if someone said, so sorry, you Black, to my face. I would, that could actually be an interesting conversation. What uh, would you say? my mouth would be dropped open as it is now. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's not something that's in my mind, what white people think of the work or what they think is terrible um, as I'm doing anything. So it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that question because it's not a question. They're saying that the horrible time to be black is based on their, you know, perception of blackness, their perception of the times, their lack of understanding that this is a continuum, um, that this isn't a time that's actually much different than any other time we've been in. Um, but that, you know, within within Black, this is a, a deep joy that they can never understand. And just lastly, how do you think this initiative would have resonated with young Ava? Oh, I would love it. I would love it. It's a good question. I would, I would have loved to have this as a young person. I was, you know, very uh, wanting to learn more about how to participate in the world and to be an active citizen and believed in justice and dignity for all then, as I do now. I remember... Being when my aunt Denise introduced me to Amnesty International at a U2 concert, and I mm. got a little pamphlet, mm. and um, I remember reading that pamphlet and you know learning more and buying books, and it was just that little piece of something that said, you know what, there's more than you in the world. Look outside, look beyond, think about the plight of other people, think about the majesty of other people outside where you sit. Um, all of that opened up a whole new world for me, and so. I actually thank you, Rebecca, for making that connection for me. I never thought of this possibly being that, um, but if it could be that for any young person, um, it would be a success. Uh, so here's hoping. Well, I'm very eager to share it with my own child, especially during this time. Um, and I thank you for the work that you do as ever. Um, so appreciate and admire you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Ava's series, When They See Us, is a powerful story to help further a national dialogue around social justice. But in order to pass the policies and change that social justice demands, we have to vote the right people into office. This applies, of course, on local and state levels, but as we head into what may be the most important presidential election of our lifetimes, how do we restore our faith in the value of the vote? or in democracy, for that matter. I figure that if anyone can lead us at least in that general direction, it's Desmond Mead. Because Desmond's personal journey is inspiring, and he has a real vision for not just his future, 
but for all of America. And it makes me want to believe in our country more than I have in a long time. Desmond is the president and executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, a grassroots organization run by formerly incarcerated people or returning citizens that works to prevent discrimination against people with convictions and specifically to help them re-register to vote. Last year, he led the charge on Amendment 4 in Florida, the biggest voting rights win in half a century. Desmond has an extraordinary life story that informed his vision for a future he didn't always think he would have. When I was standing in front of those railroad tracks, uh, waiting on that train, uh, I was homeless. I was recently released from prison. I was addicted to crack cocaine. Didn't have a job. The only thing I owned was clothes on my back. Right. And I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel, you know, none of that. And, and I was like ready to end my life. Just point because there was no use of me living anymore. And, and that's what I thought at the time. And so I was completely broken. So when you say broken, what do you mean exactly? The night before, I actually went to this church just to ask a pastor to pray for me because I was really just that desperate. And I'll never forget when the pastor put her arm around my shoulder and pointed at another guy at a different part of the church and told me to go to him and make an appointment for the next day. Mm. Now, all I asked was for prayer. So in my head, I'm like, woman, don't you understand how desperate I am? Mm. How, you know... If I'm coming to you and I'm not asking you for money, I'm not asking you for food, I'm not asking you for clothes, I'm just asking you to take a few seconds and intercede for me on my behalf to God. Just just, just pray for me. And she looked at me and told me I had to make an appointment for the next day. I didn't know if I was going to live to see the next day. And I remember walking out of that church thinking, man, even God has rejected me. That's a super heavy feeling to leave a church with. How have you reconciled since with that moment? Well, you know, I, I, I think that on the surface, without having to go too deep, because if we have to go too deep, then this might be one of the counseling sessions, and I don't know if we can do that over the air. But I, I think that what sits at the heart of it was the fact that um, I may have had underlying issues that were... Uh, exasperated by me turning to drugs, me turning to alcohol, and where I became so addicted to it that at the end of the day, everything that I did at one point in my life was geared towards how do I get high or even higher. Mm -hmm. And so every time that I've been basically in trouble in my life, it was totally around me wanting to be under the influence of drugs. And how do you remember that person? Are do you are you able to look at that at that person with compassion? Oh yeah. In recovery, one of the things that they always say is you got to hate the disease, not the person. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, when you go into those recovery rooms, man, you see people from all walks of life for real, right? That that alcoholism and drug addiction don't discriminate, right? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. get Democrats, Republicans, Independents, white, black. Latinx, rich, poor, middle class. 
Alcohol and drug addiction does not discriminate. Mm -hmm. All right. And in those rooms, you would find all of those people that actually function together because they have a common disease, right? And they have a common goal. And that is to stay clean one day at a time. Do you remember the first time that you felt like a real sense of joy that came from something other than drugs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember it uh, distinctly. You know, it was uh, a time when I was actually still in treatment. I had asked myself if that train would have killed me, how many people would come to my funeral? Mm. And the answer was zero, mm. right? And that made me question what have I been doing with my life and really question about the insignificance of my life. And I'm like, man, is your life that insignificant that nobody would care if you died? You know, and, and so I took that with me in the drug treatment. And eventually when I came to that realization that I could do something to at least have someone appreciate the time that I've spent on this planet, that was the way for me to go. And it was something that I shared that caused someone to experience a paradigm shift. And so when that happened, when I had that encounter with a young man that actually gained hope based on something that I said, I felt an eruption inside of me that I never felt before. I can tell you that it was a joy that I never knew existed. It was a joy that I was chasing all my life and didn't even know I was chasing it. And that was really discovering my purpose or discovering God's purpose for my life. And it was a very simple purpose. It was just to give back. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so I want to talk about the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, the organization that you lead. Tell me what it is. Well, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition is an organization that's led by people with felony convictions and family members who have a loved one that's been impacted by a criminal justice system. And our claim to fame right now is the fact that we led the Amendment 4 effort, which successfully re-enfranchised uh, 1.4 million Floridians. And then we, as people who have been involved in the justice system, have really stepped out in front uh, of leading in advocacy efforts around reforming this uh, justice system of ours and making it more sensible, humane, and um, conducive to productivity. And what I mean by that is that a person does something wrong, they get caught, they get punished. After they're punished, they ought to be given every opportunity to successfully reintegrate back into our community and be a contributing member of society. And we seek to remove those obstacles and the discrimination against people with felony convictions. In this really sort of overwhelming moment, particularly for Black folks, it's really difficult to think about democracy and voting amid COVID and nationwide protests. And so how are you feeling right now about the fate of the election? You know, when early on when we were just entering into COVID crisis, you know, I wondered about that and I was concerned because there was so much concern that was being paid to COVID-19. Places were shutting down, movements were restricted. And I wondered about the negative impact that it was going to have in our elections and people not even thinking about elections anymore. They're thinking about surviving. You know, uh, we had the unemployment crisis here in Florida and just people trying to figure out how to get by day by day. 
And so, you know, initially I was concerned, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think that all of those things really spoke to the importance of voting and how voting can really be the difference between life or death. And that this was an opportunity for us to really connect the dots and where it wouldn't be that difficult to do because of what people were experiencing in real time. And so how do you make that connection in a clear way to folks who are literally trying to get by day to day, right? There's a reason that it's difficult to convince folks to vote, especially Black folks, because the, the you know, and right now, like the democracy and this country is, uh-huh. for lack of a better term, rigged. Well, I mean, so so that that's those two things right there. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, when you talk about getting uh, Black people out to vote, we know historically candidates have not even spoken to the issues that Black people were really concerned about. Right. And so you can't get them out if you can't talk to an issue that they can directly connect to. Now, in this case, there is an issue that people can directly connect to because Black folks are dying at a higher rate uh, than anyone else as it relates to COVID-19. There are Black folks that are experiencing uh, a hardship, economic hardships because of COVID-19. There are Black communities that are being largely ignored as it relates to uh, uh, COVID-19 testing, you know, and getting provided proper PPE equipment. And Mm -hmm. so there are just so many things that's going on. And then when you add in the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey and um, um, and Breonna uh, Taylor, right, and George Floyd. That those are things that Black folks are intimately connected to. They experience racism and 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 white privilege on a daily basis. And so this moment that we're facing is actually speaking to issues that politicians have avoided in the past, and which contributed to the lack of participation in the Black community, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have a a, a prime opportunity to connect the dots and and turn the African-American community out like never before. Okay, so let's just really bring this home. Say, for example, I don't want to vote. Tell me why I should. (laughs) You know that, hey, you know, first of all, some people who say that they don't want to vote a statement that probably precedes that is that my vote don't count, mm-hmm. right? And what I tell folks is that if your vote didn't count, there wouldn't be so many people trying so hard to prevent you from voting. Mm-hmm. Number two, I would tell you that no matter what your status is in life, when you go into that voting booth, you have just as much power as the richest person in the United States or the most powerful person in the United States because your vote counts just as much as them. That's Desmond Mead. Coming up, why he still has hope for the justice system. That's in just a minute. Thank you. 
So I would be really interested to hear what your idea of paying dues means. I really struggle with how it works, like how the prison system even works. Who gets arrested, who gets sent to prison, and under what circumstances? Well, here's the deal. So I want to reverse that a little bit because I think there's been so much discussion along those lines and not what I believe are more important lines. And so what I believe is this. What we know is that at least 95% of people who are incarcerated will return back into our communities. And so the most important question is, what kind of conditions would we want to exist in that community for those people that are coming out? Mm -hmm. Do we want conditions that will make it difficult for them to get a job, make it difficult for them housing, employment? Do we want to ostracize them in such a way that we increase the likelihood of them committing another criminal act? Or do we want to create conditions in which when these individuals are released, they're given every opportunity to successfully reintegrate back into our community, be a part of our society, and help contribute to the successes of our society? And we have to make that decision. What do we want, all right, for these folks when they're released? Mm -hmm. Once we can wrap our head around that, then we can start talking about how we want them to be treated while they're incarcerated. And then we can start talking about whether or not they should even be incarcerated in the first place. But I think we first start with the end game. So how close do you think we are to knowing what we want around that conversation? Well, you know, I I think that we are close, but I think the the biggest impediment is partisan uh, politics. Mm. That drives false narratives in order to strengthen their side of the fence. Mm. But I think that we're there because here's the deal. And I know that we're there. The success of Amendment 4 was the fact that we were able to connect with people along the lines of humanity. And we was able to bring into the fold people from all walks of life, all political persuasions. And that force was driven by love. Right. When over 5.1 million people, which was a million more people that voted for us than any other candidate on the ballot. When those 5.1 million people casted their ballot for Amendment 4, it was not a vote out of hate. It wasn't a vote that was based out of fear, but it was rather a vote that was based out of love, forgiveness and redemption. And that night uh, in November 2018, we showed the world love can, in fact, win the day. Right. And one of the references that I used to our campaign, I think was so descriptive of our campaign, was getting people to imagine how we reacted after natural disasters. We as a people, when you see a hurricane or a tornado rip through a community, what was that? How did that aftermath look? And what I always seen was people came together to help people. They didn't care about your race. They didn't care about your sexual identity. They didn't care about your immigration status. They didn't, think, they didn't care about your political preference. What they seen was another human being in need, and they rallied around that. And it's in those moments that our country is great. Would you call yourself an optimist? Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, Most because you could just as easily talk about what happens in a crisis to black and brown folks given 
the government response we saw with Katrina, with, uh, Whoa, with Sandy. Guess what with, you just said. Mm-hmm. Given the government's the government, response, it's when right. the government, it's when right. politicians get involved that you have the biggest problems. When you see uh, with, with the COVID-19 response, Rebecca, the beautiful parts about the COVID-19 response was when everyday people just came together to help their neighbor. Mm. Mm. The bad things happen when you see politicians get involved. It's really, it's so compelling to think about it that way. And I think, and I really appreciate the reminder of that. And so going back to the impending election coming up in the fall, do you think, do you think we're going to get a fair election? (laughs) You're asking me to uh, be a fortune teller now. Yeah. Yes, I am. It sounds like you can handle it. But you know what? When was the last time we had a fair election? Okay, word. You know, when, when you think about it, you know, in the broader sense, you know, what I do think is that um, people are going to come out. I do believe that. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, that we're doing our part to encourage people to vote by mail. But there are going to be some people, some populations that is going to just insist on going to the polls and personally casting their ballot. And I mean, I can't argue against that. You know, I could encourage them to to mail in ballots, but they're going to come out. But the bottom line is, is that I do believe that there's going to be a, a heightened uh, energy level during this election because of all of the events that's been happening uh, in 2020. I mean, this has been like a twilight, a uh, 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 twilight episode, right? Right. Where yeah. it's just so many just strange and outrageous things have been going on. Uh, um, but thankfully, they all line up with the importance of voting and the importance of distinguishing between a politician and a public servant. And so just sort of in closing, um, th- this podcast is about essential conversations in a pivotal year for America. And we called it that before it became, as you said, such a Twilight Zone episode. Um, And so we're asking folks about the ways in which race and racism impact and play out in in their lives and, and in everything that we do as a country. Can you tell me what is the essential conversation for you about race and racism in your life and work? Ooh. What is that conversation? I mean, I, 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 I remember when I was a little kid and I had this, a friend uh, that was white and we thought we were brothers and sisters. I mean, we just did everything together. Um, and we really didn't like pay too much attention to the, to the color of our, of our skin. Um, and I remember after we were, um, her parents moved away and my mom used to love to tell a story about how we were both at the airport, right? So everybody was saying goodbye to each other. And this young lady and I was like, we're little kids, like uh, maybe three or four years old. And we were clinging to each other for their life, right? Mm. And her parents and my parents was pulling us apart. And then when they finally managed to pull us apart and go their ways, we would break away from our parents and run back to each other, uh, <laughs> clinging to each other for dear life and screaming at the top, top of our lungs, right? Those are our 
precious moments, right? And I have not yet lost hope that we can get to those moments. And I know that they exist, and I know that it's, it's possible because it shows up in our kids every day. Mm. And so, matter of fact, I think the, the theme of this journey is how do we get back to Eden? Mm-hmm. How do we get back to Eden? And I think that those conversations mean that we must deconstruct a lot of these narratives that were implemented or rolled out for the sole purpose of keeping us as a people divided so that a select few would remain in control of our society. That's Desmond Mead. He's at Desmond Mead on Twitter. If you are experiencing suicidal feelings or know someone who is, please get help. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It's open 24 hours a day. Christina DeJosa and Joanna Solitaroff produced the show with editing by Anna Holmes, Jenny Lawton, and Tracy Hunt. Our technical director is Joe Plord, and the show was mixed by Isaac Jones, who also wrote the music. Special thanks to Jennifer Sanchez. I'm Rebecca Carroll. You can follow me on Twitter at Rebel19 for all things come through. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. Thanks so much. <laughs>